Welcome to this week's episode of the Making It in Asheville podcast. This is your friendly neighborhood podcast where we sit down with an Asheville local, ask them what they are making and how they are making it in Asheville. Uh, and the idea here is that we want to show the many ways that this community is uh, growing and, and building and uh, supporting one another. And so today's guest I'm very excited to have. It's Debbie Word of Chemist Gin, Chemist Spirits. And Debbie, please, if you could introduce yourself to the podcast, and then I will tell my uh, story of the first time we saw your space and uh, how I lost my socks in your in your bar. <laughs> Um, I am Debbie Word. I'm the founder and owner of Chemist Spirits here in Asheville in the South Slope uh, area. Um, Perfect. And so, what else do you want to know? (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll spend the next hour or so going over that. What else I want to know? And so, Chemist Gin, if you're not familiar, uh, I think it's perhaps one of the most beautiful brands, period, but also brands in Mm -hmm. Asheville. Um, I remember Sarah and I, when we were just like visiting Asheville, thinking about moving, um, we saw your space on the South Slope and it was, you know, it, it would be the coolest, most beautiful place in any city, in any neighborhood, uh, that it happened to be. And it happens to be here in Asheville. And it like, you know, I said, I lost my socks because you knocked my socks off. It was just so beautiful. Um, and Sarah and I, one of our favorite cocktails is this Italian hyper bitter uh, Negroni, which, you know, the primary spirit is gin. And so we had, you know, had to come in and, and test it out and take it for a test drive. And so since like, you know, early days, it's been something that I've always wanted to do is sit, sit down and get to meet the people at Chemist. And so how exciting uh, we get to talk today. I am, I am excited to speak to you as well i've listened to your podcast for a while now and can't believe i'm actually on it (laughs) that's very generous i'm blushing if uh for those of you watching on youtube you know uh so thank you for being here and i i mean i want to say uh as like perhaps the first thing we say my understanding of your timeline is one of the fastest executions i can conceive of uh, it's, it's my understanding that perhaps it was December of 2015 or it was like a holiday present. Maybe it wasn't holidays, but you got a, a home still like a five gallon still. And now here we are about six years later, having a very massive, uh, in, in brand at least. And I don't know the scale of the operation, but it seems big, uh, gin business and spirit business. And that is like hyperspeed for for me and so help us get a sense of where the where in your business what is happening today in 2021 and then we'll go back to 2015 and where it where it all started well today um it's it's crazy busy um we i i actually have to pinch myself occasionally when i really stand back and look at what we've accomplished but um, yeah, we are branching out uh, more quickly. The pandemic, of course, messed everybody up. But uh, last year was supposed to be our big growth year. And um, we were very, very fortunate to be able to even 
just keep it even keel and stay open because mm. there were uh, so many craft distilleries that just couldn't do it. They just didn't uh, didn't have the cash flow to keep their doors open. So a lot of them ended up across the country, ended up closing. Um, so we felt very fortunate to be able to hang on. Um, but in the past several months, we've seen a lot of growth. It's really started opening back up. And um, we also have um, a, a pretty big deal happening this summer. We're launching in Europe um, with, uh, I can tell you about that <laughs> later, but that's, sure. it's another huge step and, um, and we're growing and hiring more people and expanding and had to buy another piece of property because our, we're just uh, so crowded in in our space, which we thought would last for quite a while, and we were very mistaken. Um, so we're we're doing fantastic. It's it's kind of amazing. Wonderful. Help me get a, a sense of the scale of your operation. Like, how many people are we talking about? What is? Uh, I don't know how you think about quantities. Is it barrels? Is it bottles? Is it uh, what? What is? What's happening right now? So you're you're growing, you're buying a new place. Is it for production? Um, no, presently it is just storage because oh, wow. um, when you get into uh, manufacturing like this, you have to have all of the components of your product hmm. on hand. And at the moment, we can't count on the glass manufacturers to get glass to us um, in a timely manner. So we're having to buy whole containers of glass. And they need to go somewhere. Um, the glass manufacturers won't hold on to them for us and just ship what we need. They want them out of their warehouse. So what we found was that um, when we were ordering smaller quantities, it's a lot harder for to get the glass manufacturers to schedule us because then you're just, you know, you're, you're not important enough. So yeah. we have learned that um, uh, we need to to scale up, to be able to scale up and have the continuity of having your materials there on hand, you have to have a place to put them. So we have struggled over the last year and a half with borrowing space from Green Man and mm. um, storing things outside that really shouldn't have been stored outside, but we had no choice. And, you know, then we had problems with um, the bottles getting dirty and cardboard dissolving and, um, the 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 boys the the guys who are in the distillery that I work with um well, were playing Tetris every day literally with mm. the forklift moving things around just to be able to get to the production uh, equipment and um you know moving a pallet of bottles in so we could bottle moving but in the meantime had to move um IBCs out to be able to you know just just move things around. It was a day. It is. It's still a daily occurrence. We're almost done with the new property, but um, will that yeah. be in Asheville? You know, greater Asheville area as yes. well. I suspect. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah, actually, in the alcohol business, um, to stay within, you have to get what's called a bond to store um, finished product that the taxes have not been paid on yet. Mm. Um, um, and that bond can be extended within 10 miles. So for us to have a second location, it had to be within 10 miles of our production facility. So I had to find property that, uh, 
that was far enough out that it wasn't downtown Asheville expensive, sure. um, but close enough that we could uh, take the truck back and forth to shift, um, you know, product or not product, but uh, uh, things like bottles and cardboard and um, everything uh, yeah. back and forth. So, yeah. So we found a place that's about a 12 minute drive which is not too bad. Yeah. You can get almost anywhere in, in 12 minutes in, yes. in, in Asheville. So, yeah. okay. That's, uh, it's, and do you have a background in like production of things like a physical hard good? No, no, I had no business getting into this business. Okay. At all. <laughs> it seems like, it seems like, uh, you pointed towards, uh, you know, just, what would be like a career problem solver, right? Like career. Yes. Uh, like I, I can't imagine like the idea of bonding and like, Oh, well then I just learned that we can go anywhere inside of 10 miles. I don't, that's not, I don't think common knowledge necessarily. No, and I, I no. it might be in the industry perhaps, but like mm -hmm. the, I imagine that there's been from 2015 to 2021, just a fire hose of information Oh, yeah. And and then you know then you direct the fire hose towards the fires that are happening inside of a business. Um, what in in present day? What are some of like the more interesting perhaps problems? Right. So you you've talked about running out of bottles. Perhaps you can produce more than you can store. Right. Or uh, getting what is the the raw input that becomes gin um how are you today faced with problems and one of them you've already discussed is is being able to store the the inputs uh, every day is a new day and a new problem yeah. so um for instance today um i was i'm i'm still dealing with uh again bottles trying to get bottles from california because our bottle supplier doesn't have any anywhere in the country other than california and we need a stopgap because we're actually getting a custom bottle made in china but it won't be done for a few months so we're trying to get the last of the bottles that we need of the existing bottle and then i have to try to get a customs broker and a freight forwarder for the Chinese bottles that will come into the into Port Wilmington, and I have to, um, you know, so I'm so I'm trying to solve that problem to get that quote to make sure that we can afford to ship the bottles from China, uh, along with trying to get the bottles from California. And of course, freight is ridiculous right now um, mm. on anything like that. Um, and then there's the barrel problem, and the fact that we need some more 53 gallon barrels and um, we're searching all over the country right now to get those to, to get our whiskey put in. Um, so, um, it's, it's typically the, our, our biggest problems are getting all of the components together at the right time in the right quantity. Um, we were running out of our tea caps that go on the, the, the closures for the bottles. And then we ran out of the shrink wraps and then <laughs> it's just, um, it's just this constant trying to keep up with supply and inventory and, um, um, 
and then you have the fire marshal visits and the <laughs> and the list of things we have to do for him and um, working with the ABC system in in North Carolina is quite the challenge. Um, it's one like of the it could be. It, yeah, North Carolina tends to be one of the most difficult states to start a distillery. Um, mm. It's just things are changing. They're getting they're they're actually gradually getting better. There there's a lot of improvement that still needs to be done. But um, North Carolina tends to be way behind uh, the rest of the country in mm. um, changing laws and getting things uh, to the point where they're they're um, supporting their manufacturers and particularly in the spirits industry, because mm -hmm. there's this, uh, there's this conception in North Carolina. Um, you know, we are in part of the Bible belt and uh, spirits were, <laughs> were given this, this, um, this evil, um oh what's the word for it the, it's it it was played off a hundred years ago as being um the what was killing the the community what sure. was ruining men and you know ruining families and yeah. you had the suffragettes and the all of this pulling together um it so prohibition happened and mm -hmm. that was supposed to be saving the families and um and and uh and decreasing alcoholism and and all of that it was made out to be this this evil evil thing yeah. and it was always taxed high higher than anything else um and that was also perceived to be because it was evil and it was um it was you know, a, a habit that people shouldn't have, therefore they should pay high taxes, kind of like cigarettes, mm -hmm. um, very similar. Well, as it turns out, I've, it's amazing how much you learn when you dive into something like this. I did not realize, and I think most people don't realize, that the reason that the taxes are so high on spirits, much higher than on beer or wine or anything else, goes back to the Revolutionary War. And it actually was a tax that was proposed by George Washington to pay for the Revolutionary War. Huh. And it actually started then, and it wasn't supposed to last forever. But of course, once the government was making those that money, huge money, um, they never backed off of it. And it gave this impression of spirits should be taxed, you know, enormously because it's something you shouldn't be doing anyway. It's sure. a vice. And um, so that actually is where the high taxes have come from. And that's something that the manufacturers are trying to get reduced because mm. it is, it, we should have parity with the other alcohol producers. And what are, what are we talking about in, in a tax rate? Are we talking? One bottle. And this is just very round numbers. Yeah. When we sell a bottle, um, half of that goes to taxes. Wow. So do not pass go, do not collect any money until you've given half of it. Uh, exactly. How interesting. Yes. Wow. And people don't realize that. They can't figure out why spirits are so expensive, but that's because we pay such a high rate hmm. that um, there has to be a profit margin in there somewhere. But the yeah. state makes, and the federal government, both mostly the state actually, yeah. make way more money off of our bottles than we do. 
Yeah. So it's it's eye opening. And uh, holy holy moly! And then I imagine, um, as with most, uh, well, this is my perspective, but I, I feel like rules like uh, high tax or uh, prohibition often just result in you know incentives have funny outcomes right but result in speakeasies and moonshining and uh you know keeping stuff off the books and so uh you know nothing necessarily changes except for you know everything changes and so uh my you know my dad when i when we first were saying that we're going to move down to Asheville. He's watching. He's one of those guys who watches like Moonshiners, the television show, and <laughs> watches all these uh, whatever channel that is. Everything that's on that channel. Um, and so he's like, "Oh, there's a bunch of, you know, people we we watch who you know have stills in the woods back out there. That's cool." And so, North Carolina has incredible tax history. What do you, are you familiar at all with North Carolina's? You know, uh, I imagine. Uh, illicit alcohol oh, history. Oh, absolutely. That that actually was what spurred me on to try to make um, spirits up in the mountains. Um, yeah. We have a place west of here in the middle of nowhere, off uh, four miles back a dirt road. Yeah. And um, and this is actually how this all started. You're you're giving me an, an opening to talk about how this how we started all this. Um the area where our cabin is was known for stills all through those mountains. And I, we actually, before moonshine was allowed by the TTB as a type of alcohol, which happened it's several years ago now, but back in the nineties, um, you didn't see something on the shelf that said moonshine. It, it was not an allowed, uh, TTB. When I say TTB, that's the, our federal governing agency. Um, And um, they changed that law. And then you saw these moonshine manufacturers pop up. Well, before that, we actually had to get moonshine from a moonshiner, which really was, I was never allowed to know the name of who I was getting it from. It was always through a third person who would then meet me somewhere in a parking lot or, you know. So that's how we used to get uh, moonshine. And it was... um, it it was literally for entertainment purposes when we had company coming because from other parts of the country, they all wanted to try moonshine, yeah. the real thing. And sure. You go to so Philly. We had some cheesecake. Ex- exactly. So we would build a campfire and sit around the campfire and pass the jug. And, you know, it would, be, uh, so I had different samples from different areas and some from Tennessee, some from, you know, Western Carolina, some from Georgia, a couple different, you know, some uh, peach moonshine, which is actually peach brandy. Mm. And we just, it was, we could, I could not actually stomach it. I would take a tiny sip and then just shudder. And it was (laughs) always awful. And I couldn't figure out why. Um, and I figured there had to be a way to make it better. And so, you know, how are they, if moonshine is off of these backwood stills is so terrible, how are they making rum that tastes good, gin that tastes good, or whiskey that tastes good? So I just dove in and started um, 
just started researching a little bit and sure. then decided I needed my own still and mm. just to play with. It was just going to be a hobby. And um, my husband finally acquiesced and gave me one for Christmas. And the funny thing about that is it actually was made in the Asheville area, handmade copper pot still um, by a guy who was uh, had a small business. And we had to meet him in the parking lot to get it from him because he wouldn't let anybody, he, he must've been doing some things that were a little bit um, uh, on the edge of illegal because yeah. he didn't want anyone to know where he was actually manufacturing these. How interesting. So uh, yeah. So anyway, that was, that's how I ended up with the still and um, then just started playing with it trying to make I really wasn't trying to make moonshine I what moonshine is typically a corn base um and I I veered off of that immediately I decided I wanted to make rum so I started with molasses and sugar and trying different huh. recipes and we were actually getting some good stuff and I'll, so. I'll I'll pause you here just in case people following along aren't necessarily familiar with spirits or or moonshine I don't pretend to be familiar with spirits or moonshine um in any you know capacity but uh when you say terrible the thing that showed up in my mind is like it tastes like you're drinking like gasoline it is very alcohol and like an alcohol rub uh versus something that you would want to drink uh this is this is perhaps like painful fire heat in your mouth that is not necessarily pleasant or something you would sign up for if you had other options, if you had alternatives. Correct. And then uh, with, with spirits and with uh, anything alcohol um, based, my understanding is that there's pretty, uh, there's a lot of ways to, to do a lot of things, but generally speaking, you're in categories based on the carbohydrate that you use to create the alcohol. So, um, you know, beer is often hops. And then you said, you know, molasses and sugar is often rum. Potatoes can be vodka, vodka. but the, the carbohydrate is pretty much the thing upon which the spirit, uh, is defined more or less. Yeah. Somewhat. I mean, there, there are those uh, like vodka can be wheat, corn, mm -hmm. um, just about anything, actually. Um, vodka is a definition, by definition, a tasteless and odorless alcohol. Huh. So um, it's actually just distilled over and over and over until it's 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 tasteless, basically. Sure. Um, which is so, why it's so used so much in mixed drinks. Yeah, and, and maybe a better example then would be you know wine comes from grapes and sake right. rice, right? So right. like that. Uh, where I right. went, potatoes shows my limited <laughs> yeah. knowledge of the space. But uh, so, yeah, okay. so you immediately say corn, you know, uh, other people can get good with corn. I want to do things that trajectory uh, point towards more mouth fun than pain. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And corn, yeah, I said a lot. It of has it has a place. You know, with whiskeys. Corn. Yeah. Corn can be. Yeah, yeah. And and there are a lot of people who use sugar for moonshine. Mm. Um, what I did discover in my education, um, I believe the reason that I never 
liked moonshine is because um, what we do when we distill is you, the, the alcohol is boiled, um, comes to a certain uh, temperature and each alcohol is, or, or the fermented, the fermented uh, liquid actually is, is boiled. And what happens is the different alcohols that have been created and are in that are boiled off at different temperatures. Mm. So the very first alcohol that, that comes off the still is going to be poisonous. Basically you, you literally, they're called four shots. You throw them away. Mm. Um, they're also very good for cleaning things, but, um, but you do not drink them. Uh, the next thing that comes off the still is a different alcohol. And when you say comes off the still, I, this is where I start to imagine there's like a, a some sort of tube that winds its way away from a boiling, <laughs> right? Like boiling area. And then there's, it goes away and it drips off into a side. And when you say comes off the still, that's what I should think. Yes, the first yes, things that yes, leave sorry. and I, drip I was off. jumping ahead. Yeah. And in, and in our situation, we have pot stills um what is called a line arm which is what the vapor goes up into it's the tube that goes over to the condenser and the condenser then is a chilled um uh almost like a chilled bucket that yeah. the vapor then is passed through which if it, you remember science that turns it, comes it back. back into a liquid cool so and then Wild. it drips off the still so yes so the first thing that actually goes through that transformation you, you throw away. The next part is what's called the heads. And the heads have particular alcohols that um, can give you, that they'll, um, they smell different. They have a different mm. mouthfeel. They taste, they can, they can have cogeners in them, which are off taste, off flavor mm. uh, that you don't want in your alcohol. But as it goes through the heads, it then comes into what we call the hearts. And so the, the distiller's job is to make the cuts. He has to keep tasting it until it gets to the point in the heads that it's acceptable. You want a little bit of the heads in the, in the final product. Hmm. Um, but then he cuts and gets rid of those heads over there that aren't going to go in it. And then he lets the still continue. It goes into the hearts. The hearts are the best part. They are the the alcohol that is the most pure. It is the alcohol that will not make you sick unless mm. you, of course, drink way too much. But they are that is the best tasting, best mouthfeel. It's what you're really looking for. And then it goes into the tails. So you've got the heads, the hearts, and the tails. And the tails again will be a different kind of alcohol, which again can have off flavors and then can make you sick hmm. and then it goes and then you finish. And what you're looking for is that center part, a little bit of the tails, a little bit of the heads. Well, what moonshiners, what I've been told, what moonshiners will do a lot of times is they will take all the heads, put those in the jug, take all the tails, mix that with the heads and they keep the hearts for themselves. That makes sense. <laughs> Okay. And so you end up with the heads and the tails in this moonshine that they sell you. And that's the stuff that really makes you sick. Yeah. And that's why it doesn't taste good because it's got all those cogeners in there. Um, but it'll get you drunk. And that is what a lot of people are looking for. So, oh, well, thank you for, uh, for taking this, <laughs> for taking us through that. And that makes, you know, a, a lot of sense. 
in the year 2014, I cut my hand open trying to do something fancy and open a bottle of beer. That little cut happened three o'clock in the morning. My only option was to go to a hospital in New York City. That quick trip got me four or five stitches. Those five stitches cost me about $1,000 each, maybe a little more. I paid off that hospital visit for years, and it made me never want to go to a hospital again. And so when we heard about Range Urgent Care in Asheville, who has a very convenient uh, model one that says, show up anytime, book ahead of time, and you will be seen when we say that we would see you. Uh, they do virtual visits, they do home visits, and they have a pricing model that is consistent, 149 every time you come in. And you can go in for anything that's not proper emergency care, 149 every single visit for x-rays, for stitches, for uh, a checkup. You can you can go and not have to mortgage your home to pay off the treatment. How about that? Sounds amazing. Where would you go to learn more about this? You'd go to makingitinashville.com forward slash range. We have links to a number of range subscription options. I subscribe to a single person's uh, subscription plan. It costs me $30 a month and I love it. It gives me peace of mind. And I know that I will not go bankrupt if I ever cut my hand in the middle of the night trying to open up a bottle of beer. Rangeurgentcare.com or making it in Asheville.com forward slash range to learn more about these plans. Imagine. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. so, but then that's moonshine. That can be any number of, uh, any number of carbohydrates that turn into an alcohol. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, moonshine, is, is there a category moonshine, right? So you mentioned the TBB, BBT. T oh, sorry. TTB. TTB um, now has a category called moonshine. What is moonshine? And you're not, you know, chemist isn't making moonshine that I'm aware of. You're making gin. And so how did we get from this curiosity into gin? Well, because what I started leaning toward when I started making alcohol was to make something that I like to drink and rum was one of those. Um, uh, that's where I started, but then discovered gin and mm. that actually um, became the focus. And um, we actually started really enjoying what was coming off the still. Huh. And that's it. it it just happened. I, I yeah. can't even tell you how it happened. We were sitting, um, I was sitting with my daughter, Danielle, who is the chemist, uh, my son-in-law, James, who is now my creative director. He's very talented graphic designer. Um, and we were up in the mountains sitting around the kitchen table while the gin was coming off the still mm. and um, started talking about the prohibition and that era and my daughter being a chemist, um, we were laughing about the fact that it was chemists that were the chemists and pharmacists were the only legal producers of alcohol during the prohibition. Mm -hmm. And they did it. They would write prescriptions, take this whiskey for your cough or for consumption or whatever mm -hmm. it was, whatever ill anybody um, and that was a very prevalent medication back then. So 
Danielle being a chemist. We started just, I, it literally happened around the kitchen table that day. And we started talking about, wow, you know, Asheville has so many breweries, but they really don't have, at that time, they yeah. didn't have any other distilleries, uh, they, any um, craft distilleries. And it just, someone around the table said, man, wouldn't it be fun to start a distillery in Asheville? <laughs> oh, like, man. Hmm, you should not have said that to me. Yeah. Fun <laughs> is a word. Yeah. Fun yeah. was what we thought. Yeah. Uh, so. That's amazing. And I... I had a moment, it was a handful of years back at this point where I w- when I, when I grew up and, you know, f- was first introduced to drinking alcohol, uh, gin was like the thing that I decided I didn't like, like no way. Ugh. And who drinks gin anyway? Right. Like was one of my, one of my logics, like, I don't want to be a gin drinker. And then all of a sudden I'm in my late twenties. And I'm thinking about the cocktails that I order and like what I like the most. And I was like, oh my goodness, I, I'm a, I'm a gin drinker. Like after all this time, like now I am a gin drinker. What are who, like my whole, my, my sense of self flipped on its head uh, one day when we were in New York. Um, And your name chemist reminds me there's this kind of secret, but not secret bar um, in Chinatown in New York on this little side street that hooks and there's no way you get to it unless you are like trying to. Uh, and it's sign is it like has like a potion and it says, you know, chemists. And, uh, I remember being in that area. The bar you're talking about. Yeah. Is, yeah. And so there's this, I remember seeing it for the first time and being like, this is absolute lunacy. I'm in, like middle of the day in Chinatown. I was meeting someone and I was just killing time. Like, this is crazy. And then a couple of years later, I go there uh, and it's like the coolest and most, uh, you know, special cocktail experience that I've probably ever had. Yeah. I took Sarah when yeah. she moved to New York and uh, I hear you on, there's this really beautiful uh, story to be told about specifically the chemists and alcohol prohibition and even today. Um, and I, I can imagine the feeling, the excitement at that dinner table, uh, thinking, Hey, we might have an idea here and there's, uh, let, I'll just assume that everyone on the podcast at some point has had a moment where they're like that, that I think we have a thing. I think we have a thing that could be a thing, very different. Uh, the energy at that coffee table, dinner table, uh, often wanes by the next morning and definitely will disappear for most people in a couple weeks um, at the very longest a year to go from home still to second location to buy raw supplies and store them in five years is a lot. What were some of your first steps when you, when you got the bug and convince yourself that somehow it was going to be fun and not a nightmare uh, of, you know, legal and operational burden? Well, um, I tend to jump in with both feet. And so I went to Asheville and started looking for property. And um, within... (laughs) Property, okay. (laughs) And um, we 
I looked at a few places and was just kind of getting an idea of what the city would allow us to do because at that point there were no distilleries in downtown Asheville. Mm. We were the first to actually be in the city limits. Um, and so I needed to confirm with them that they would allow us to build a distillery in the central business district. Uh, once I got that confirmation, I knew I could look downtown. Uh, we knew just from the first pulling the concept together um, that we wanted to take advantage of the fact that Asheville is. What is happening? Debbie, can you hear me? Hello. We're back. I'm going to be at the bar having a drink when you come. <laughs> Listen, I am, uh, I can't describe how I'm feeling right now. I know mm. that uh, some settings have changed in the last five minutes. I don't know. Test speaker, H5. Holy moly. This is. It can't be on my side, can No, it? it's me. I don't know what's happening. I don't know. I don't. This is the exact setup we use every week. I don't. Sarah's not even in the office normally. My wife's on the other side stealing yeah. internet. I am plugged directly in. Huh. It is me. I apologize. Oh, please. Not like there's anything you can do about it. No. I, uh, goodness. So you're going to get a gold star and a sticker to commemorate. <laughs> oh your patience uh in this conversation so um you looked for real estate and you uh let me i'm going to do a little snap just in case help find this in the future but you looked for real estate uh you got the okay that you could potentially have a still in downtown so you start looking in downtown central business mm -hmm. and we were looking for something that was walkable Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, just especially during tourist season, everyone's out. And that, that just helps dramatically with with your uh, marketing and just being seen versus oh, yeah. having to draw people to you. And we happened upon the space where we ended up. Um, it was Elf Auto. Huh. Uh, Cox Avenue used to be, uh, it, it went through several transformations, but back in the 1920s, it was all auto sales. Um, you've got the Sawyer building uh, that, that is now has been converted, but, and several others that were auto dealerships. Sure. And then over the years, it declined some and it turned over to um, auto repair places. So all down Cox Avenue used to be auto repair place. This was one of the last ones. Um, and it was, a like 1990s Morton building with mm -hmm. bays down the side and a parking lot between it and Funkatorium. Wow. And, um, it had just come on the market when we saw it and I jumped on it and, um, uh, made an offer and they almost didn't accept it, but then they did, um, by the way, I could not touch that property now. It's the, oh, the values mean, have just for anyone soared. who's not necessarily familiar, it, it like you have premier 
South Slope, you know, uh, lo- location storefront on on Cox, and in our two years in Asheville, and a little bit more when you think about when our first visit was, I've seen crazy growth in that area specifically of Asheville. So I and, and I mean, y'all represent, I imagine, a meaningful moment in the Slope's uh, history, but um, yeah, I, I, I honestly. I can't imagine. So it was just timing wise, serendipitous. Absolutely. And um, yeah, it's, it's funny. They tried um, after we had signed the, the offer and everything and we're in due diligence, they, they tried to back out because they got an offer that we were told was significantly higher than ours. I believe it. <laughs> but, um, but we, we held them to it. Thank goodness. Um, and um and originally, all I was going to do was build a distillery, and the parking lot was going to stay parking. Mm. And it was actually in the middle of the design phase that I had this epiphany that, wait a minute, that property's a gold mine. Mm. And if we can build a bar next door that could be the mouthpiece for the distillery, and you have all this this uh, pedestrian traffic back and forth. And there was no cocktail lounge, um, in South Slope. It was all breweries. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we, we should probably just dive into this. And, yeah. um, and that's why antidote happened. Wow. And w- at when did that open antidote? Uh, and it uh, opened six months after the, the distillery opened in June of 2018. 18. And Antidote opened uh, about six months later, the end of 2018. Wonderful. And I, uh, we moved here midway through 2019, so six months, six months, six months. And I, you know, it was, it has to have made a, your presence in the South Slope, I think, probably helped um, or has some very meaningful impact on South Slope that is outside of my scope of, of understanding. But uh, to go from we think that we're gonna to just be a, a still um, distillery to we're going to have a location to we have one of the most beautiful like executions that I've seen in the space. How does that like how does that happen? I, I've asked sort of lightly like what is your background uh, because uh, it seems that with most everything that. I'm seeing from the outside in, like it's really high level execution implementation. Uh, had you ever designed a space? Do you just know how to find the right partners and architects? And uh, how did you go I, from? I have some to something? background. Right. I, I, in my former life, was a landscape architect. Um, and I realized many years ago I should have just been an architect I should have I I loved (laughs) I was young enough and in college and thought if I was a a, I love architecture but if I'm a landscape architect I'll get to be outside a lot (laughs) (laughs) instead I was behind a drafting board (laughs) the majority of the time but the part of landscape architecture if people don't know what that is uh, it's not being a landscaper it's a college design degree, and it actually incorporates a lot of hardscapes, mm. um, road alignments. You have to know a lot of engineering. You, we had to take a lot of architecture classes and design a lot of buildings. 
um, it it integrates the landscape or the land with architecture. So it's a combination of the two. So I did have that background and I did do for uh, when I worked for a landscape architect many years ago, um, actually right out of college, um, one of the main jobs that I had was doing historic preservation of uh, restoration of facades in some mm. of the downtown areas in Kentucky, which is where I was living then. Um, some of these older towns. And I I just really got into historic preservation and yeah. and preserving the the aesthetic. So when I went into this and we knew we were going to revolve around the prohibition era era, um, I immediately it was just obvious this building needs to look like it was built at the turn of the century and was an apothecary yeah. um, in downtown Asheville. So I studied some of downtown Asheville's architecture and I settled on what is called cast iron architecture. So if you look at the front of, of Antidote, um, there are big cast iron columns with the big rivets. Um, it gives it a lot of its character. And that was very prevalent back at the turn of the century. There is some cast iron architecture downtown Asheville, but it was all over the country. That just yeah. became a really popular um, design element. So um, you know, we took, we had the Morton building, which I was trying to save thinking, well, if nothing else, we have a roof. If we have to gut it, you know, we still get the roof out of it. It has to be something, you know, it, this is a usable space. Well, of course, in the end, I should have just torn it down and started over Classic. <laughs> because all of the upfitting we had to do, it would have been much smarter, but we had that space that we were dealing with and we had to integrate that look with the brand new building, which is Antidote. Um, and make them look like they kind of came together. So incredible. Uh, but I'm I'm very um I've been called a lot of things. <laughs> I'm very particular. Um I'm very detail oriented. And that all fed into the historic look of the building. Um I obsessed for two and a half years over every little detail and Every piece of furniture that went in mm. antidote, everything that went into the tasting room, um, almost every single piece is an actual antique. Some things we couldn't do as antiques because they wouldn't have held up. I've lost a few antiques um, in antidote that have um, grown legs and walked out. Well, oh, no. well, we have had quite a few small things that oh, okay. have been picked up, but no things that just that were uh, antiques that didn't stand the test of time with customers um that we've had to um take out the back door because they fell apart Got it. but um yeah i just i'm i just um get obsessed with with making it look as authentic as possible it's amazing i can't so i can't imagine uh even if the opposite approach were to happen where it's like well i like you know i like home distilling let me start with a small space somewhere not close to a town uh let me try and get good and build a small thing and like grow over time your two feet approach seems uh heroic and also like terrifying and so uh how how did you go about either fundraising or getting bank support like what did the process look like had you been saving for a, a visionary uh business at some point what did 
it's one thing to have an idea to execute on it at some point, you know, money needs to show up. What was your plan early days? Early days was to prove to my husband that I could do this because, um, there was a lot of, um, um, <laughs> negative energy <laughs> around <laughs> believing because I'd never run a business. Mm-hmm. I obviously had never been a distiller. Um, I, I've, built a lot of buildings. I knew I could do the, the architecture and construction side of it. Um, but yeah, it was jumping into some, something I really didn't know what I was jumping into. So I decided I was going to get, I was going to go to the bank and get loans. And, um, I, I, I kept running into walls and it was, um, a lot of this had to do with, um, being a female. Um, there in the in the early days that was a big struggle which mm. it didn't even dawn on me that anyone would care that i wasn't a man but i have learned that distilling is very much a man's world and women are finally coming on and and starting to become a much bigger part of this this business and this um this whole endeavor but in the, just 5 years ago there were very very few and I would have men look at me and just scratch their heads and go, oh, honey, I don't think so. <laughs> it was very frustrating. So um, I also did, um, uh, I, I shouldn't give the name. It was a business um, help kind of volunteer entity that I went to to speak about starting a business because I knew I I was going to need help and I didn't know anything. And uh, there were a couple of gentlemen that sat down with me, um, retired um, businessmen. And I got the same negativity from them. They said, we don't think this is a good idea. This, this will never, never fly. And all of those things though, um, just spurred me on. It just made, you don't tell me I can't do something. It's I'm that person where it's, I'm going to make it happen because you told me I couldn't do it or it wasn't going to work. So, yeah. And it's, it's such an interesting thing where there's, there's almost a fine line where if you're getting a million yeses, like something's wrong, right? Like why, why, like what, what about it and how many other people then are doing it? And, uh, like there almost needs to be some sort of very real barrier hurdle thing uh, early days to sort of like it's an indication that maybe there's something here. And then there are also obviously moments where when people are saying, hey, this is like not a good idea. There are times where you have to listen. But it's like, wait, you mean to tell me in a town that gets a ton of tourism and is known for alcohol already that a, a, like a luxe, beautiful high touch brand with a beautiful execution with like ideal real estate in downtown couldn't be successful. Get out of here. Like, of course it could be. And so like, if you know that, I imagine it makes some of the, uh, hardships of a lot of no's and, um, perhaps pandering or whatever, uh, however you'd communicate the oh honeys which um i can't uh, honestly imagine or uh, so i hopefully it it 
gave you this deal to continue, but at, at, at what, what, what happened? Like, did you fundraise with women founders? Did you well, uh, I, change your um, pitch? Hats off to Mountain BizWorks. Okay. I did um, a couple of their business classes, and yeah. um, that helped tremendously understand just the basics and what I needed to do. I thought about crowdfunding at one point, um, but then decided to that I had enough faith in this. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have the means to do it without without getting anybody else's yeah. um, financial help and just decided I was just going to do it. Um, sure. um, you know, we're, I'm not 25 years old anymore and um, my kids are grown and, you know, we had money put away and it was something that I felt strongly about. And I said, you know, if nothing else, if the investment becomes the property, yeah, um, the way I saw it going, it was like, so if the distillery dies, it doesn't make it. I still have the property. It's a, a wonderful investment and mm. I don't feel like I'm going to lose one yeah. way or another. So why not just go ahead and do it? So that's basically what happened. We just ended up deciding to fund it ourselves. And have people since, uh, since seeing, cause one thing, you know, uh, I had this idea, maybe you have a, somebody that's a graphic designer put together a deck and, you know, you take a business workshop class. So now you can tell a story of like, here's how it's functionally going to return in your capital in six years. And everyone says no. Um, and then all of a sudden you have a space, all of a sudden lights are going in, all of a sudden they can taste and look at a bottle. Um, have you taken investments since in the last five years? Like, are people trying to give you money? Has anything changed there? Well, I, I have, there have been people who've, have, I never really knew if they were serious, but, um, but yeah, people have been interested in becoming part of it. But once I dove in the way I did and the whole idea in the beginning was this is a family business, this, um, I wasn't building this to turn around and sell it. I was building it for my family and for my daughter and son-in-law and, and their kids. And yeah. hopefully the the hope and the drive is that this company will still be there when my granddaughter is 21 and can, she can become part of the business. Yeah. Um, um, so to bring in other investors at this point, just, I have no interest. Sure. What a beautiful, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it makes me feel and think a lot of things, but uh, at the end of the day, if you can own a pro- if you can execute and own a project outright, that's almost always, like there are there are benefits of having you know a board or an investment or advisors who have experience and can make connections and have some skin in the game, so they actually do the things that they promised that they would do mm-hmm. uh, anyway. Um, but it does seem like all things equal, having ownership and the ability to move quickly or make decisions. Uh, is helpful. And I, there's a bunch of restaurateurs in New York who, uh, I've, I've watched their, you know, trajectories and it's like, they do however many restaurants. And then at some point it's just, they do the restaurants themselves because they, they know, and they can move faster and it's easier. And if you have the, the resources, it seems like it's a, 
that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I imagine that the tables would turn at some point and they might have where uh, people now want to give you money. Banks want to do your creditor and uh, uh-huh. they're like good riddance cash flow is, is, is all right. Yeah. As long that's as special. we can float, you know, and, and get through the tough times, it doesn't, um, it, it, I don't want a committee yeah. making every decision and um, feeling like someone else's money is on the line. It's uh, it, there, it is a different mentality when it is yours and yeah. you know that the way it's presented is, is going to reflect on you. And yeah. if I brought other people in that would muddy the water a little bit, I think. So That's great. And, and I'm wondering, so um, you're gin. Talk to me like, and, and you've mentioned, I heard at one moment I left it alone, but you said whiskey. And so what's happening in, in the spirits? How, how are we feeling about, uh, you know, the, the core product here? Well, the core product of course was our American gin. And, um, we quickly started throwing it in barrels. So we had our barrel rested and then we made Navy strength, um, which is one of my favorites. Um, but we always had assumed at some point we would actually make whiskey. Mm. Um, a really good single malt is what we're making at the moment, um, which means that the definition of single malt is actually that it's made in a single facility. Mm. It's not necessarily just one grain, which is what a lot of people think. But we are using straight... Yeah, we're using um, uh, just uh, malted barley, um, local as local as possible. We mm. get our our uh, for these last batches. We we've been making whiskey for three straight months um, to be able to start really putting it away and let it sit. We make so, we've already released um, our founders reserve. We've had two releases. Um, we're we're going to be releasing our third and the founders reserve concept was really that it was our very first that we made. And, um, it's, it, that is made from local grain. Those mm. barrels were chosen and, um, uh, and blended in house very carefully. Um, and it's very limited release. So, the our founders reserve single malt whiskey uh, is being released in small batches. But what we did this year is we really ramped it up and mm. have um, produced a lot more this year that will go in barrels in various size barrels so that we can release some of it younger. But we can also we're also going to put our some 53 gallon barrels, full size barrels away for years and continue to build on that so that eventually, hopefully we have all 53 gallon barrels and, and it's all aged a lot longer. And if I'm not mistaken on, on smaller bottles, that's, it has something to do with the ratio of contact to the wood. Yeah. Uh, and so a smaller bar- barrel can age a little bit faster and get to the same yes. space. Much faster. Our first release was a year and two months. And it actually, one thing too, that, um, uh, a lot of people don't realize this. The reason that whiskey um, has historically been aged for longer periods in large barrels mm. is it tends to cover up um, being in a barrel. It will 
somewhat erase the um, not so great aspects of the of the white dog that they made. White dog being right off the still, mm. clear liquor that then goes into the barrel. Um, being in a barrel for a longer period of time will smooth mm. that out or change the mouthfeel. Mm. It'll take the edge off. If you start with a really, really good um, product coming off the still, you use the best malted barley, you make your cuts really close so that you're not putting in a lot of heads and tails. Um, you just use really good brewing practices. Um, what comes off the still is actually pretty good in itself. And then it can go in a smaller barrel and actually come out with a lot of those characteristics that you would equate with a, something that's been in a barrel for years because mm. it didn't start with those problems. Yeah, more it aggressive. started out well. So it's really what goes in dictates what comes out. So our really young, smaller barrel whiskeys, um, it's fooled a lot of people. They mm. don't even realize that it's that young because it's it, it started out good. Um, so... We, but we would like to move into the bigger barrels. Just there's a there are a lot of um, perks. You know your 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 cost um, yeah. uh, cost of goods is lower because the smaller barrels are more expensive per liter yeah, and a, a economy of scale type of a yeah. situation. That yeah. makes sense. You might have heard Range Urgent Care on our podcast. Husband and wife team lives right here in Asheville, building a better urgent care model. What are they doing? They're making scheduling seamless and straightforward and honest. When they say they'll see you at 4 p.m., you'll be seen at 4 p.m. They make pricing straightforward as well. $149 a visit or less if you subscribe to an annual subscription, which I do, it costs me $30 a month, and I love the peace of mind. But not just that, you don't just get to go in person, you can do virtual visits uh, over your computer, or over your phone, and they'll even come to you, they'll do home visits. And to me, I mean, it seems like a absolute no-brainer, you can bring they have family plans. They have business plans. To me, it's a peace of mind thing. It, it makes me feel confident and comfortable knowing that I can see range uh, in my subscription a number of times a year, and it's built into my, my plan. I will not be surprised by a crazy cost, and it is covered by most major insurance policies. So if you haven't heard of Range Urgent Care, I welcome you to check out that episode with the power couple that runs it. You can check out makingitinashville.com forward slash range makingitinashville.com forward slash range to read more about these subscription options and get links to the range website using our link or using our discount code of making it in Asheville will get you a free month in an annual subscription. Again, range urgent care. You can say that we sent you or visit makingitinashville.com forward slash range. How, how interesting. So uh, have you pretty much like raised a flag? I mean, your brand looks and feels like it's been there for ever, right? It's, it's, it's beautiful. Has that helped bring like talent in who want to do beautiful American spirits? Uh, what, like, what is the 
talent pool look like? I imagine uh, there was, we had a guest at one point said like, you can't throw a cat without hitting a yoga instructor or a brewer in Asheville. And, <laughs> and I don't recommend anyone throw cats, but I'm wondering yeah. what is the, what is the pool look like of, you know, experience and, and uh, labor in distilling? Is it, is it comparable? The pool is very small. Okay. Because, um, you know, yes, brewers are, they flock here, obviously. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's a lot of amazing talent there. Um, what has brought more distillers to the area is the um, AB Tech started this distilling program. Mm. I guess it's been about five years ago now because our first distiller was one of the first graduates of that distilling program that was in tandem with the brewing program that they do at AB Tech. Um, they're small classes and people are coming from outside of the area to attend that distilling, those distilling classes. It takes, it's, I think it's a couple of year uh, degree. Mm-hmm. And he came to us. He actually um, cool. found us before we opened. We actually started working with him like six months before we opened. Um, but our, um, I was, I knew nothing about business, really knew nothing about manufacturing and, and what all, everything we were going to have to learn. But I knew enough that I, I knew I needed help of somebody who knew what they were doing. So I started looking for a consultant way back, probably well, it was back in the very beginnings of designing the building. I started mm. looking for a consultant. And on a random trip to Scotland with my sister, um, and of course, I was all about distilleries at that point. It's like, sure. I, have to, I have to go to every small distillery I can find. Um, happened upon this small distillery in Scotland and um, turned out the owner of that distillery became our consultant. Oh, cool. And... Um, we went over there and worked on his stills and then, um, used those same stills. They're out of Portugal. They're, they were handmade for us. Uh, they're very traditional Alembic pot stills. Um, and we ended up duplicating that system over here. Although we use direct fire because again, I wanted to be very traditional and that is actually the original way spirits were made was, Mm on Olympic pot stills with direct fire. So we have giant burners that sit under those pots. Um, his, his heating system was steam coiled and we, we just, uh, that, well, it was me, not we, I decided we weren't doing that. Um, but other than that, it's the same system that he had over there and he has stayed with us. Um, he still is involved in our production. He oversees what the guys are doing. Um, He's been involved in a lot of different things, but he uh, he was making trips over here a few times a year, and obviously that hasn't happened for a little sure. while. But, wow. uh, yeah. And so, so to to look to the future, um, production will still kind of happen where production is. You now have a lot more raw materials. You're going to have storage for that s- shortly. What are we thinking on the back half of 2021? Excited just to get more uh, product into the market. Yes, that's what we're working on. Mostly we just hired a uh, new head of sales, hmm. brought him in actually from the from the brewing industry. Um, but um, 
yeah, we're, we're pushing getting into different markets and, um, and pushing more in the state. We have a sales team that we're very fortunate to have that as well. A lot of craft distillers can't afford mm-hmm. to um, hire people full-time for sales, but we, we felt like it was really important to get our product out there sure. to actually have, they're really brand ambassadors in North Carolina because because we're in a control state, they can't actually sell our product, mm. but they can visit all of the all of the uh, ABC stores. They can mm-hmm. visit uh, all the bars, restaurants, and introduce our product. And uh, they can do events and do training for bartenders and that kind of thing. So they're bar they're they're brand ambassadors, but um, they pay close attention to the metrics and uh, are watching what they're doing and how that's influencing um, how things are spreading across the state. And then there's Georgia and Tennessee. We've got uh, um, uh, distributors in both of those states that handle the sales for us there, but we still uh, visit there to get on premise to actually get our product in people's hands. So wonderful. Wow. Yeah. Not, not easy. And, and, you know, to think about that timeline, I, uh, six years sounds like a lot. And I know that it's, it's not, it has to have moved in a blink of an eye for you. Um, I'm wondering how long have you been in Asheville? Um, I have, actually lived here for about that five years now but that was um this was a foregone conclusion because um i lived in the deep south and always felt like a fish out of water Mm. mountains is where i belong we started coming up to the mountains to escape the heat back in the 80s and then ended up buying a place so my girls were practically they were about half raised up here um, and then they got married, moved, you know, uh, started having children, moved away. And that became the time it was, I was just itching to get up here. So this all just kind of fell into place at the Unreal. right time. It was yeah. like, uh, my daughter ended up with her job at the VA. Um, James, who is the marketing director, um, the, who has done all of our branding and, you know, it's, that's pat, been a pat on the back for James. Yeah. Wow. Yes. We, we couldn't have so done strong. what we did without that. And, um, in fact, I told him I wouldn't start this business unless he came with me. So, oh, wow. you know, no pressure there from your mother-in-law, but, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but he could work from anywhere. So yeah. because he was graphic designer and that's yeah. what he was doing at the time. But, uh, then when he came on board with me, um, you know, it just all, it all fell into place, uh, right about the right time. It's a beautiful thing. Well, I'm going to ask uh, a question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, uh, when you think about Asheville and you think about community, what shows up for you, uh, with those two words? Oh, it's everything. It is everything. When I think about the, um, the brewing com- community in particular, they embraced us and it mm. made, it was, it, it just made us feel like we were a part, even though we're not a brewery, but it, um, in the very beginning now, I will say they, 
a lot of the guys were pretty wary of this woman who just came into town and um, was doing something that no one else had done. Um, but once they got to know me and we got to know all of us and we yeah. started doing some collaborations with some of the breweries um, that just gelled and we have great relationship with so many of them and they're also talented, but the, the artistic community, the com- it's part of what drew me to Asheville. Yeah. Um, it's, I, the, it's so much more comfortable here just feeling like um, there's this glue that holds Asheville together, that it's an undercurrent of, of community and watching out for other people and not being um, so competitive and backbiting. And I think everybody wants to lift everyone else up. I think we all realize that, um, if you help everyone do better, that we all benefit and it's, uh, it becomes a, a more beautiful community and city. And, um, yeah. So well, I, it's, I, it's made all the difference to us. That, absolutely. That, that's wonderful to hear. And that is, uh, the, it's the reason this podcast exists is to try and do those things that you just pointed to. And I am uh, so grateful for your time today. And I look forward to coming by um, perhaps a Negroni, perhaps uh, one of your earlier batches of, of a whiskey, but I am, I'm so thankful. Thank you for joining us today. You are very welcome. And I would love for you to come by and have a private tour and, uh, just uh, hang out with us. 